one, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Hello everyone and welcome to Green Left's latest podcast. This time we're talking about artists and with the COVID-19 pandemic that we're in. I'm here joined with Michaela, who's a visual artist. And first of all, I want to start off, Michaela, talking about how have you been impacted by COVID-19 and friends you know in the industry? Yeah, well, it's been a pretty uh, dire impact. So within the visual artists community in Sydney, a lot of us were struggling before COVID-19 in terms of, you know, most of us are working multiple low-paid, casualised jobs um, or on on temporary contracts in order to support ourselves to produce art. And then you have COVID-19 come along and suddenly there's all the gallery spaces where you could show your art have closed so you can't, we can't really show our art um, anymore, which is obviously an issue. Plus on top of that, there's an increased financial strain so, for example, um, a couple of artists I know have lost their jobs um, directly as a result of COVID-19 because they work in arts um, administration or as arts workers. Um, even myself, um, I'm on a two casual contracts at the moment, which will both be ending in about a month's time. So it's pretty uh, dire situation for everyone. I think it's definitely a thing with a lot of venue closures and so forth about having public gatherings. Like I remember three or four months ago, I was planning this sort of viral documentary I'd been making around some of the protests that have been happening at the end of last year. And we were like, oh, we're all going to have a launch for it. And then it's like COVID happens like, no, that's not possible. We can put it online, but will we get 20 people or not? And I mean, I know one thing, my partner had a had an exhibition at the Women's sort of library in Newtown around sort of climate activism and feminism. And mm-hmm. But luckily the launch happened just before the restrictions came in so they actually had the exhibition with all the artists and she sold a piece so she was really happy but a group of them were going to be doing a um, panel and that kind of stuff and that all got cancelled sort of mid-exhibition and I know a number of other people such as there's one film we've covered, The uh, Woman of Steel, which is a documentary that's in the final stages of production and coming out and they're sort of grappling with the question of, well, where do you screen it at a time that cinemas are closed or might slowly be reopening, but under quite strict measures. And we've had things like the Melbourne International Comedy Festival is one of the first places to close. Zine fairs have been closing, which is often a space that a lot of visual artists and photographers would use to showcase their work. And I remember one place that I had was the um, last year I was at the Museum of Contemporary Art Scene Fair and we had a full panel that I was on and that was really good and then people came and spoke to me after the panel and bought scenes and a lot of those opportunities have gone away. Yeah, that's definitely true and also like major uh, cultural events like the Sydney Biennale. So they they actually um, went online and were much sort of lauded in the media for being able to do that and have some digital content Um but for smaller um, arts festivals, um, it's definitely not so easy to move online. And like you say, for an individual arts practitioner, these f- festivals often give us an opportunity to make new contacts, um, show our work to people and, you know, build build things for the future. So that's it's kind of tricky not having that those opportunities. 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting this question of online because when everything happened, everyone was like, oh, we can do all these creative things online. And there's been some things like, I think it was some like opera companies have done sort of shows online and bands have live streamed, which is good. But then it's also like, if you think about it, you have a film at a film festival and you get two to 300 people in an audience. And then that looks mm -hmm. quite impressive, both from the photos of it and the feedback you get in the publicity. Whereas getting sort of three or 400 views on a film online next to a TikTok dance that's got a million views kind of doesn't look that impressive. And yeah, and it's it's hard to compete with the clickbait, like I guess I'd call it fast food media out there, like, you know, all the YouTube channels, cat meme videos, which get, you know, a million views and you're trying to show this, you know, interesting, you know, independent visual art content it's a real struggle up against the kind of industry that's already been built up through YouTube. The other thing about the um, digitization of work is that, you know, there's been a lot of praise through the media, mainstream media and through social media. Oh, isn't it great that, you know, such and such a musician has performed this concert online? And you know, isn't it great that this artist has showed this new work online? Or isn't it great that the, you know, Met Museum has opened up an online, you know, viewing channel or whatever it is they've done. They've done something like that. But, you know, most artists actually don't have adequate resources to do that. Um, so, so you need like very good internet. If you're an arts organization, you need a whole team of support workers to get that digitization happening, computer, video equipment. And for an individual artist, you might not have the time to do that digital production on top of you know you're already doing three casual jobs you're already trying to keep on top of your art practice and then to convert it to digital form you know it's it's quite challenging some artists I know have been very successful visual artists have never been sex successful at doing that but most of them it has to be said have been doing that digital stuff as part of their art practice for a number of years like they're the kind of visual artist who always has their stuff on Instagram you know the next day or they produce small videos every day about what they're working on in the studio but it's not every artist is like that and it's probably the same for other you know filmmakers and other fields as well absolutely and I think I mean, the online's interesting because it does cost a lot of money. And I mean, Rome wasn't built in a day and people that have built online mm. followings have been very specific at targeting online followings and that's good for them, but it doesn't work for everyone. And also it's like, if you want to do live streaming, you do need quite a bit of money for live streaming equipment, such as converters to yeah. get stuff online and cameras and internet. And in fact, I remember when the lockdowns had to happen, I looked at buying a couple of things myself and they'd all sort out online. So it's... Yeah. become incredibly competitive as well, the online space. And I think because we live in an age now where online content has become so highly developed, people expect a certain level of quality in the image. And, you know, if you don't have the means to produce that, it immediately kind of looks bad. Do you know what I mean? So if you do a, you know, just average video of someone giving a presentation about something and stream it and people are like oh but the audio is a bit not great it's a hard space to navigate you know there's always criticisms of you know the kind of technology as well 
And then there's lots of arts you can't even really do online, like for instance, the styles of printmaking that you can do, you can scan them or take a photo of them and put them online, but it will look quite different or not the same as the original. And that's sort of one of the beauty of certain artworks is that they can't be replicated online. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, with painting and sculpture and installation art, like well, with painting, for example, you know, the texture, the actual quality of the color in the drawing, the the line work. All these things, these details, the materiality of the artwork gets really flattened in a digital presentation. And artists know that and, you know, we're quite aware of that, but a lot of the general public is not. Um, And that's something that's really lost in digital presentation, which can't really be replaced. So, you know, that's why we sort of have galleries and museums to show the artwork for that reason because there is something to be said about you know the material presence of an artwork uh, in terms of the very specific detail of the object it's also hard for other forms of art so like I'm a performance artist I do video performance so you'd think you know this is a great opportunity for me because everything's gone online and while it's true that my work does go online it's of very kind of specific content where it's quite personal in nature, quite psychological. And it's not something I just want to freely send out into the internet. It's actually something that is better presented, you know, on a video screen in a gallery space where it's a more intimate space. Sometimes the work that I do involves an element of violence or horror or these kind of elements which don't really translate well into online digital space yeah and a lot of art that is made is centered within the communities that it's made from and it's harder to have that sometimes without being able to interact within a gallery space with people as well yeah exactly and um you know a lot of art gains its meaning visual art this is gains its very meaning from being within a gallery space or as a sometimes as an intervention in a um, non-gallery public space, but nevertheless, it's often site-specific. So it relates specifically to the site and the location and the, the physical being of the artists themselves or the artwork within that space. And that's something really difficult to convey online. So that's another struggle. Oh, we're still talking about the importance of art spaces. So if you could tell people a bit about Carriage Works and what's happening there. Yeah, okay. So Carriage Works has announced that they've gone into admin- administration. And, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs of the financial details about why that had to happen. It's a revenue issue. After that announcement, there was a lot of talk within the industry, you know, how can this happen to one of our sort of largest institutions? Um, there was some talk that the Opera House would take over. I'm not sure what the end, end point of that discussion has been. But basically this announcement is just the tip of the iceberg. So even prior to COVID-19, a whole lot of galleries, you know, were having to shut down. A lot of artist-run initiatives, which are artist-run organisations had to also close. And that's because of really, 
years of neoliberalism and, you know, at least two decades of Australian government cutting funding to the arts, so and particularly to our arts institutions. So it's not really a surprise that a place like Carriage Works has had to shut. It is highly unfortunate because I have colleagues who work there who have lost their jobs and also I have colleagues who were meant to show work in exhibitions there, which haven't happened, obviously. So it's a difficult time. Yeah, do you want to tell people some of the work that has happened in Carriage Works in the past for those that aren't familiar? Yeah, so um, they're often um, it's often a space used for uh, performance work, uh, for contemporary dance, so new choreography. It's always used as a site for the Sydney Biennale as well, so that's showing most of the more cutting-edge contemporary art that's happening out there. They also often show live music. Now... Hopefully some of you have been to Carriage Works. Um, you will know it's a huge space. So they are able to do really large-scale exhibitions. So one of the most outstanding ones recently was a large-scale installation exhibition by the American artist Nick Cave, not to be confused with a musician, a different Nick Cave. Um, and that was a really beautiful exhibition not every museum or gallery can put on an exhibition like that. So the quality of space at Carriage Works in terms of it's a huge space with you know very high ceilings, it's an industrial site for building trains, I believe. The specificity of that site allowed for these really large-scale, very interesting exhibitions of contemporary art and especially installation art. So it's very, it'd be very sad to see that um, a site go as a museum and gallery space because that means that those kind of exhibitions won't be able to be shown in Sydney any longer. Yeah, I sort of want to get back into this point that you raised earlier, which I think is really important about government funding and how it's been cut over the last sort of couple of decades. And, and to me, this is something even beyond the art sector of COVID-19 that we've seen. It's revealed a lot of problems that have existed in society for a long time. It's just been pushed to the forefront. And Government solutions are quite lacking now, have been lacking for a long time. We've seen it across other areas such as housing and so forth. And if you look, like even in the film industry, I've talked to filmmakers that said, oh, in the 70s and 80s, you could go and get internships at the ABC and learn how to make documentaries and then you could go and get government funding and then you could make them and you could go overseas and win awards and get screened on television in Australia and have broadcast deals and now all that's pretty much been gone in a large part because of government funding cuts and we've seen that across the arts industry as well. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I think uh, when Whitlam was in power, there were a lot of initiatives to support artists and it was a much, not an easy time, but an easier time to be an artist. But, you know, I agree, like, with what you say, like, COVID-19's really revealed the sort of intense stratification of a really already highly stratified visual arts sector. So... You know, there's there's a range of people within the sector on wildly different levels of income. But the majority of those people actually previously did rely on government support. And so now, over the last, you know, couple of decades, they haven't had that support. So, so basically, you have a situation right now where 
before COVID hit, you had professional artists with gallery representation, which is the minority, who would some of them able to make a living from their work. Then you have artists such as myself who've entered the tertiary education sector as lecturers or technicians. But most of this, these people, like myself, are on a very precarious income because it's, everything has become casualised. There's a lack of tenured positions. Um, and then you have a lot of artists who've entered into arts administration roles, which also involve temporary or casual contracts. And then, you know, you have the majority of artists, also including me, who are working two to three jobs in unrelated fields, you know, hospitality, gig economy, et cetera, et cetera. So we already had this situation of people actually struggling across the board, except for a minority, and then COVID hit. That was difficult. And then the other thing I wanted to mention about the government funding cuts over the last few decades. So COVID comes on the back of a very depleted visual arts sector. So, and this has mostly been pushed by the Liberal government, but, you know, the the Labor government has sort of gone along with it as well. In 2015, you you might remember that the then Attorney General and Arts Minister George Brandis stripped $104.7 million from the budget of the Australia Council for the Arts. And he wanted to use that money to fund what was termed a National Programme for Excellence of the Arts, which was um, to bring funding decisions into the remit of Brandis's own department. So obviously there was a huge outcry over this, but it went ahead. Um, And for those of you who don't know, the Australia Council for Arts is Australia's imperfect yet its most important arm's length funding body for visual arts and arts organisations. So by arm's length, it means that the government doesn't directly get involved in decisions about what artworks, films, books, etc. are funded. And obviously Brandis wanted to intervene in that situation after this happened in 2015, a lot of small to medium arts organisations had to close. Many artists and art workers had to lose their jobs. And access for grants for individual artists seeking funding for projects, um, such as developing artwork, developing films, um, became more limited. So that was a crisis only recently. And even though the policy that Brandis brought in 2017 was, sorry, he brought it in in 2015, it was scrapped in 2017 and some money was returned to the Australia Council for the Arts. Um, The whole sector never really recovered in my mind and it has, across the board with my colleagues, been much more difficult to get grants or funding since that time. And then slashing for funds for artists continued over the last couple of years. And to add insult to injury, sorry, uh, the Morrison government uh, in December of last year, you might remember this, merged the Department of Communication and the Arts into a new super department called the Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Communications. So there's no word art or culture in that title and this cutting of the department for the arts um, really paves the way for the government to increasingly increasingly get away with its neoliberal 
policies of dismantling public funding for the arts. So when the crisis hit again in COVID-19, um, you know, there's no government department that we can mobilise to support us. And also there's no incentive from the government. There's, they, it's not important to the government, the Australian government, to, you know, assist the sector. No, I think it's quite critical we look at what these cuts actually mean. Like, on one hand, they definitely mean lots of people lose their jobs. Um, I mean, the government's thing about trying to get people off Centrelink is it's doing literally the opposite. And then we sort of go beyond that as the actual benefit it has to society. Like, even if you want to look at it in pure economic terms, leaving behind why it's good to have public art in society and telling narratives and raising voices and a lot of other reasons, like, even in economic terms, funding the arts brings a lot of money into the society into the economy like you look at somewhere like carriage works when you have large exhibitions there's often lots of street vendors and food stalls and there's lots of markets and it ties into a whole sort of local community-based economy these large exhibitions that's exactly right and you know despite what the government's telling us the statistics economically are that actually the arts industry is one of the biggest revenue providers for the australian economy so even if you looked at this from a very capitalist perspective, it makes sense to support the arts for the whole economy. Like you say, there's a whole, you know, you have one exhibition or one concert and there's a whole range of other people uh, support for that particular artwork or artists who also, you know, there's jobs for a whole, maybe 200, 300 people right there. So it's a huge sector. It's crazy that it's been overlooked in any kind of government budgeting. I think it's important, especially when talking about the government's talking about stimulus packages and coming in, it's like talking about stimulus packages for an oil-based economy, which is obviously horrendous if you're worried about climate change. They're talking about, you know, the very stimulus packages already have been quite flawed for people in the arts communities. For instance, JobKeeper has many flaws, one being that a lot of people who've had jobs working as artists aren't eligible for it. Yeah, that's 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 very true, and um, I would like to actually, you know, quote something here, um, which is a open letter that a hundred arts groups and artists wrote to Paul Fletcher, who's the Minister for Communications. So it was written on the twenty fourth of April of this year, and so the letter was stated, you know, stating that. The artists, you know, welcome government measures such as government announced $7 million for the Indigenous visual arts industry support, which is obviously vital as Aboriginal um, artists are, you know, some of the most vulnerable in this situation. And they also announced $10 million for the Regional Arts Fund and $20 million for mental health for the arts. So the artists in this letter acknowledged that that support was, you know, necessary and important. But what they said about the JobKeeper is, you know, quite pertinent to this conversation. So I'm just going to quote it now. The exclusions from JobKeeper eligibility are perilous. Artists and arts workers engaged casually for less than 12 months can't access income support. Every exhibition, every show, every festival, every gig you've ever experienced relies on these experts. If they instead join the job seeker queues, they jeopardise their employer's future as well as their own because they're draining creative businesses of specialist talent. 
uh, local government institutions and their employees are excluded. That's every regional and suburban gallery, museum and performing arts centre in Australia. Which is going to have a disastrous effect for a lot of First Nations communities where art's a key part of communities. Exactly. So it's kind of that whole, you know, contradiction of, you know, government stimulus packages where you cut from one area and then you give to another. But in fact, the area that, you know, like you're saying, the Indigenous communities might receive some support through Indigenous visual arts industry support scheme. At the same time, the sector's being completely decimated in regional communities. The other thing I wanted to mention is that, uh, and it said in this letter as well, is that 70% of artists who earn a living beyond their creative work uh, do this through teaching um, at universities. But a lot of the universities uh, have been excluded now from the job keeper eligibility. So that's it's a huge issue. And there was a strong and united campaign. Um, you might have heard of this in the media from artists and arts organisations to amend Job Seeker, but that was rejected. I know quite a few people that have got onto Job Seeker now who have become unemployed who are working in the arts industry. And at the moment, it's livable for a number of them with the stimulus package as mm. it is. But as soon as that bonus ends, a lot of them are like, what do we do? Like, Phoenix goes back as well to venues opening and so forth. Like we've heard that some places like museums and galleries might open with limited capacity, but then that raises questions of how profitable that will be as well. And what happens when we come to September if we can't have 300 person like live music concerts or theatres can't open again with large capacity and so forth? Yeah, it's going to be a huge problem. And it's obvious that, you know, health of the community has to come first. But in order to support that, the government, you know, needs to step in because, you know, we have a situation where none of our arts organisations basically can actually survive without government support. So this is kind of, um, you know, one of those lovely contradictions of capitalism where they've been decimating the arts for so long, but at the same time they've been dribbling out just enough funding so that actually arts organisations are more reliant on government funding than ever, even if they do have private sponsorship, you know, and it's kind of a very cool twist. Uh, Most artists and artist-run initiatives, which are smaller artist-run gallery spaces, commercial galleries and the like are really dependent on government support because whatever corporate sponsorship they can get is now not enough to allow them to survive because of the huge costs of um, renting a gallery space in Sydney, the huge cost of upkeep of, you know, whatever building your house and your arts organisation and your gallery in and just generally as an artist, you know, huge cost of living. So very evident to me uh, that the problem is structural and, you know, COVID-19 has just, you know, exposed the tip of the iceberg of, you know, the kind of impossibility of a healthy arts sector within a capitalist system. 
It's also interesting when we look at some of the countries that have done better in combating COVID-19 has been based partly on large public education campaigns of the danger of the virus and how to practice physical distancing best and those sort of ish things. And it's like, well, how do you educate people about these things? Well, often it's using art and it's using media and it's like a seamless package is good for the economy and then also good for the general public health as well. And actually when we're dealing with the climate crisis and the various crises of the are going to keep coming in these quote-unquote unprecedented times and it's like we need art more than ever. Yeah, 100%. And there is a precedent for, you know, actually mobilising artists and actors and everyone in a crisis. So during the Great Depression, there was a kind of program in the US, I think it was called the NPA or something like that, in which they mobilised theatre groups to go around regional centres, towns and tour, basically. And this was all government-funded. There was a whole lot of funding for artists to develop new work and there was encouragement for artists to set up artist cooperatives. So there's no reason that a similar thing could be set up here. Okay, we have this crisis. It's not, it's not the kind of, it's not going to be conducive for touring, you know, troops of actors everywhere. But you could give funding for actors or artists to make new work to be shown, um, you know, on, you know, your publicly funded um, TV network online. Like, you know, if we had such a thing, so. You know, there's a whole raft of initiatives that you could do if you had a different kind of mentality within, in terms of the government response. So I agree 100%. If a government response, you know, that helps artists actually benefits the whole community, not just artists. I mean, we know that it is important that we put the social interests of the community first, that we can't just go out and have large concerts because that would be unsafe. Mm. But sort of how do we do art safely now is an ongoing question. Like, we can have galleries with limited numbers of people is one thing, but then you can't really have gallery openings in the same way that you had before. Yeah, and it's, um, it's something that will, I think, require a lot of time and thought to to work out, you know, um, you know, I'm speaking from the visual arts perspective, but how many people within a gallery space is safe? Usually for an art exhibition opening, like you mentioned, there's, you know, could be 100 people crammed into a small gallery space. So that's obviously not going to work. But we do need some time and creative thinking to work, up, work out other strategies for for showing art and for showing films. And it is worrying that, you know, there was an announcement just yesterday that the New South Wales government wants major galleries and museums to open on the 1st of June, reopen that is. And that is it's no time at all for a gallery or a museum to really properly think through the, the health and safety issues of reopening, especially if we're coming on the back of two months of we don't know when we're going to be opening again kind of situation. So this kind of thing requires a lot of thought and foresight, you know, and there's no reason why you can't make a film event or a gallery space pandemic-proof 
Um, and I think perhaps, you know, in the future, we need to approach this in the same way we do for accessibility issues. You know, it should just be something that we do. You know, what's the point of crowding 500 people into a small space? So that's just something maybe that will change in the future, hopefully. Who knows? I'm sure artists will find many creative solutions to the different problems that we're facing right now. Well, exactly. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say? Or? No, but I just want to thank you, Zeb, for in inviting me along today. It's been really great to have this chat. And, um, you know, let's all, if we can, keep uh, creating work and providing solidarity to our um, colleagues. This time has been life-changing for a number of artist friends of mine. That, you know, they've had to move out of home, uh, to move back into home, rather, or change cities or you know do all these kind of crazy things because they can no longer survive on the shoestring budget that they're used to and just get by now you know COVID's hit you know it's just really changed the whole dynamic so it's important that we sort of look out for each other um, in the sector and more broadly. Yes, and if there's any artists out there listening to this and they want to get more profile for their work, especially doing progressive work, we have Cultural Descent and Green Left, so get in touch with us and we'll see what we can do and consider becoming a Green Left supporter to support this content over and out. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org. Dot au.